If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 26. That's where we'll be today. But first, let me ask you a question. What would you do if you knew you only had two days left to live? Two days. Let me ask you a further question. What would you do if you were with Jesus during his final two days? And finally, from our scriptures, what do we know about what Jesus does with his final two days? Well, what we're gonna see as we move into Matthew 26 is Jesus is heading into the final two days before he's crucified. And we're gonna see that he spends every last second drawing near and loving people. It's a remarkable thing really that the God of the universe spends every second loving, broken, hurting, and lost people and drawing near to them. So that's where we're headed this morning, Matthew 26. We're moving into Jesus' last two days of life. We're gonna be in the first 16 verses and it's really split up nicely into three distinct parts, which I'm just gonna call the three S's. So we have part one, the sovereignty, part two, the sacrifice, and part three, the sellout. So let me jump into part one, the first five verses talking about the sovereignty here. So here we go, Matthew 26, verse one. I'm gonna read the first five verses and then I'll pray and we'll get after it. Verse one, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Let me pray. Jesus, we just thank you so much this morning that our strength will rise as we wait and dwell upon you, God. You are our great deliverer. Just pray for those coming in here this morning who are just hurting or broken or lost or just seeking true joy and happiness in life that you would just reveal yourself in a powerful way, God. I pray that you would speak to us through the scriptures this morning and we'd ultimately see your great passion that you have for us, which you portray for us on the cross and let us just sit underneath the weight and beauty of that. Pray these things in your great name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we're moving into Matthew 26. We're coming out of a portion of the text, which is known as the Olivet Discourse. So that's where we were the last couple chapters where Jesus gave extended teachings about the end times. And now we're moving into what's known as the Passion Narrative. And as we move into the Passion Narrative, we'll notice that Jesus is finished giving extended and formal teachings through words. And now as we move into chapter 26, we're gonna see him teach and preach with his life. And ultimately his passion is going to be his love for his people. We see chapter 26 start with, Jesus, with Matthew saying, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, it's a summary statement. He's done saying all of these things. He's done preaching with words. And Matthew, when he's saying that, when he's saying he had finished these sayings, he's echoing the words of Moses in Deuteronomy. In chapter, 20, in chapter 32, sorry, it says, and when Moses had finished speaking all these words to Israel, and if you know your Bible really well, that's when Moses hands over his leadership position to Joshua, and it's the end of his earthly ministry. Matthew is wanting us to see the parallels between Jesus and Moses, because Jesus is the greater deliverer, and he'll perform a greater act of delivery than Moses ever did. And Moses gave a pretty great act of delivery, did he not? 
leading God's people out of slavery. And it's interesting because when we think about Moses long enough, we can't help but also think about the Passover. And Matthew knows this, and that's where he takes us here. Let me read these first five verses again. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. One, one quick thing here I, I've always found fascinating is Jesus again and again tells his disciples that one day he's gonna be handed over and he's gonna be crucified and killed. And despite the fact that Jesus tells them that multiple times, it was very much a surprise to them. And sometimes I give them the benefit of the doubt because Jesus speaks in parables or in symbolic terms. But right here in verse two is clear as a day. He says, the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. And it's still a surprise to them. I don't judge them, but I relate with them. Like I've read the word of God. I've dwelled on what Jesus has said and not really got it fully. Just a side note there. Verse three. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Something of great significance here are the strong differences between God and Jesus's sovereignty and plan and the plans of the chief priests and the elders. Jesus here in the first two verses is placing his crucifixion as an event that will occur after two days and that it will occur during the Passover festivities. Yet at the exact same time that Jesus is rolling that plan out to his disciples, the chief priests are deciding otherwise. They're saying that no, he should die quietly, secretly by a secret assassination and it should not be done during the Passover festivities. Thus, their plan is to postpone Jesus' death at least another week. However, they were not the architects of Jesus' death. In John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says this about his life. He says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So Jesus would lay down his life by his own accord, his own plan, and Jesus, not the priests, would choose the hour and the manner of doing so. Though it may seem as we go through the story here that the priests, the elders, or even Judas are the ones responsible for Jesus dying, it was actually God's plan long ago to do it this way. Ephesians tells us it was his plan before the world was even created. So what do we know so far? Well, we know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man, Jesus, will be delivered up to be crucified. Some of your translations of the Bible might say handed over instead of delivered up. Wh whom is he handed over by? Is it Judas? The priests? No, it's God himself. One thing I want us to pay close attention to as we were in the Passion narrative today and the coming weeks is just how amazingly sovereign God is in Jesus' death. Like everything plays out exactly how it was prophesied hundreds and thousands of years before. So we have the chief priests, the elders, plotting to kill Jesus. And Jesus is saying he's going to be handed over to death. And the language is important here because Matthew is trying to remind us of the use of the phrase being handed over. 
Because in the Old Testament, whenever that was used, it was referring to God handing people over to judgment. And that's where Jesus is going for us, to be judged on our behalf. And so Christ is handed over to take our judgment, to be crucified and take all of our sin. And not only that, but because we're in the Passover season in the text here, Jesus is being sacrificed as our Passover lamb once and for all so that the wrath of God would pass by all who believe in Jesus. And, and if, you're, if you're new in here or you're just exploring and this is kind of crazy, like we're not going to kill any lambs this morning. But what we're talking about here, this the idea of the Passover, is when God spoke to his people and he said, my judgment is coming to you. But if you would sacrifice a lamb and put its blood over your doorway, my judgment will pass by you. I'll see you as perfect and holy and blameless. And so God's people made a practice of doing this year after year after year until Jesus comes along and says, save the lambs, take my life once and for all. Take my life. I lay it down freely so that God's wrath and judgment would pass by all who believe in him so that we would be washed clean of all of our sin, all of our shame, any guilt you might have, any self-loathing, any self-hate. Jesus removes that from us the greatest news in the world. That's what we believe as Christians. So that's the sovereignty of God. Let's let's check out part two, the sacrifice, starting in verse six. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So Jesus, remember, he's in his final two days here. He's hanging out in the town of Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. You think think that's a popular guy? And it's such a small nuance, but I love the character of Jesus here. Like he's in his final two days and he doesn't avoid the culturally unclean, the unpopular, the dirty, the sinful, the messy, No, he runs right to them and loves them. Like this guy would have been an outcast in his culture. He would have been thrown out of any kind of fellowship or community because of his disease. And Jesus is there loving him. And it's an interesting dynamic because we just saw the high priest and the elders. Where were they hanging out? In a palace. And here's Jesus hanging out in the slums with the lowest of low people. I love the inclusivity of Jesus. Like he's not just for a certain kind of person, but he's for everyone as you are, as messy as you might be. He loves you as you are. And so this woman comes with a very expensive flask of ointment. It's essentially perfume. And she brings it to Jesus and she pours it on his head. Notice how in Matthew's account of the story here, the woman is not named. We know elsewhere that the woman is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Likewise, there's another male character in the story who's also not named here in Matthew's account. 
Matthew's wanting to emphasize and put all of the attention onto Jesus and what he does. And so the woman comes and she pours this ointment on his head. And we know elsewhere that this is worth about 300 denarii, which is about a year's salary. So imagine taking a year of your salary, going and buying a perfume and basically just dumping it out. That's what she does. Why? Well, 1 Samuel chapter 16 tells us of David being anointed king. It says this, And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So why does she do this? Why does she pour this oil on his head? Well, the woman in this moment understands who she is, what he's about to do for us, and she's anointing him king in the only way she understands how via the scriptures. And it's really a bold move by her. Like, it's a gutsy move. Think about the room here. It's a room full of predominantly men and her. And this is in 2019. This is a time where women would have been seen as lesser thans culturally. And you can see the tension from the disciples here. Like, they must have been like, who is this crazy lady? What is she doing coming in here, wasting this expensive ointment that we could sell off and help a ton of poor people with? You feel the tension there. Like they're playing a social justice card here to cut through the awkwardness of the situation. They got to be thinking like, hey, we're not like those rich chief priests and elders hanging out in the palace. No, we're down here hanging out in the slums with the lowest of lows and we're all about that helping the poor life. And what we should do isn't dump this oil out. No, but we should sell it. And we should give it to the poor. Yeah, that's what we should do. That's the right thing for us to do. And Jesus is like, whoa, whoa, like, lighten up guys. And he says, why do you trouble the woman? Like, think about it. We have this woman here. She's immediately present before Jesus, as she is, anointing him king, bringing him a great gift, basically everything she has. And the disciples have no regard for her as a person, a person who's broken and worshipful right in front of them, but rather they're thinking of a more vague, by the book, right thing to say notion of the poor somewhere else. And what does Jesus do? He sees the woman right in front of him as she is, as he always does with women who come into his presence. More than that, but he dignifies women who come into his presence again and again and again, and this will be no exception he's perhaps going to dignify her beyond any he ever has. And he says in verse 10, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing for me. And then he says, for you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. You always have the poor with you, he says. And it seems like kind of an odd thing for Jesus to say on the surface we got to get in here and see where he's coming from. He's actually referring to Deuteronomy 15, where, where it says, similarly, the poor will always be with you. And the context in Deuteronomy there is all about generosity. And the statement made there is, is basically there would be no poor among you if you would obey the voice of the Lord your God, 
God essentially tells his people in Deuteronomy that if you actually lived out the law in which I gave you and followed the commands of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself, if you actually lived that out every day, there would be no such thing as a poor person anywhere. And so when Jesus says, you always have the poor with you, he's saying, do you know why you don't have poor people? Sorry, do you know why you have poor people among you? It's not because we're not taking this oil here and selling it off. But no, rather it's a failure to follow the law of love in which our Father has given us. So yes, it's going to be a continual issue that there's going to be poor people around until you can fully live that out. But he says, I am the one who's worthy of worship in this moment. So it is right and beautiful that this woman would do this for me. The way Jesus puts it indicate that, you know, the woman would have been rebuked or reproached by Judas and the other disciples. Like they probably would have restrained her if they could have, recovered as much of the ointment as possible, sold it off. But Jesus intervenes on her behalf and he gives a strong approval of her act, calling it a beautiful thing. He says it's a beautiful thing to give all that is of value to him. And I wonder what that means for each of us personally this morning. I don't know, something to pray about. And she comes and she gives him the most valuable item to her name. And she pours it out on him because that's what he's worth to her. Like the most valuable thing. She's bringing him the good stuff. She's bringing him the Chanel number five. I had to ask my wife about an expensive perfume. She's bringing him the real good stuff. Like sometimes I think all we bring him is like Axe body spray. You know, like tss but she gives him all that she has. And he goes on to say that she's done it to prepare me for burial. So she gets what the disciples didn't get, that he was going to go die for us. Then Jesus says in verse 13, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Why? Well, because she's willing to give anything of value that she has because God's worth more to her. It's really in contrast to the rich young ruler. Remember, he became saddened at the thought of giving up his valuables to follow Jesus. Not her. She gives up what's presumably her single most expensive item because she understands who he is. She understands he's going to go pay a debt with his life that, sh that she can never ever possibly repay. And she's indirectly saying to the disciples and to us this morning that you're missing the big picture of who this guy is and what he's done. And I wonder, like, are we missing, do we miss the big picture of who Jesus is and what he's done for us? And that's why we don't bring him all we have. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm not trying to take up a bigger offering. I'm talking about our time, our thoughts, the way we live our life. Do we truly value him? Like he's not just some fairy or genie in the sky who sometimes gives us good things and sometimes doesn't. No, he's our savior who paid a debt that he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. Like he came and rescued us and gave us hope from all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our doubts, all of our self-loathing, any self-hate. He came to rescue us from that. 
And because of what he did, when God looks at you and I, he doesn't see any of the mess in our lives, but he sees us as perfect and holy and blameless. He's absolutely worth giving up valuables for because he's given the most valuable thing of all, forgiveness of sins and eternal life with him. So that's the sacrifice. Part three is the sellout. Verse 14. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Notice how verse 14 starts with one of the 12. Why add that? Well, Matthew's wanting to show us that the betrayal of Jesus is deeply intimate and personal. It wasn't just anyone who betrayed him. It was one of his boys, someone from his inner, inner circle. Interestingly also is the arrangement of the events in chapter 26. They would suggest that the waste of the ointment was the last straw that pushed Judas over the top into full-on betrayal mode. And notice how it was Judas who went directly to the chief priests. They didn't lure him in. He initiates it. So we have Judas here, stung by rebuke at the leper's house, wanting more money, disappointed in Jesus. He makes his way to the chief priest and says, what will you give me if I deliver him to you? And this is insane. Like Judas would have spent so much time with Jesus. They would have traveled together for days they would have ate meals together. They would have laughed together. Judas would have been standing front row as Jesus was raising people from the dead. He would have seen Jesus feed thousands of people with nothing. He saw Jesus heal sick people and cure diseases. It shows you what, what the book of Hebrews tells us, that, that you can be near God's people. You can be around powerful things that God is doing. You can know a lot about him and at the same time not know him personally at all. And so we got to ask, like, do I know him? Or do I just know a lot about him? Like, do I just come to church once a week because it's what I'm supposed to do, it's what good people do? Or do I have a deep personal relationship with Jesus where I'm longing to know him more? Something to wrestle with. And so Judas goes to the chief priest and they pay him 30 pieces of silver, which is a, about 120 denarii. That's like, less than half the value of the woman's perfume. He doesn't see Jesus as Lord. He doesn't see him as Messiah, but rather he's hoping he'd be the version of God that he wants him to be so that he can give him exactly what he thinks he needs. And when he doesn't, Judas gets frustrated and seeks to fulfill his desires in his own way. And he asks, what will you give me if I hand him over to you? That's similar to what we do when, when we're disappointed in God and, and we say like, God's not giving me what I want. I'm so frustrated. He's not giving me what's going to make me happy. So we look to the world and we say, world, what will you give me to make me happy? And he gets 30 pieces of silver and that's what it is for Judas. A bit of money. 30 pieces. To have Jesus killed. Like he barely values Jesus' life. 
Matthew, again, indicates that Judas proposed the betrayal. The, the priest named the amount in Luke's account. Luke uses the word covenanted, which indicates that there would have been some negotiation over the price, which was promptly paid and, and physically weighed out once the agreement had been reached. And here's what's insane and how we know that God has, has his sovereign plans all over this. Those priests in the room would have been very knowledgeable in the scriptures, very knowledgeable in the Old Testament law and prophets. But they were so blinded in this moment to the prophecy of Zechariah, who talks about how the betrayal of Jesus was going to go down hundreds of years before. They were blind to see that they were exactly fulfilling it, matching to the penny the Messiah's betrayal price. Look with me at, at Zechariah, who's a sixth century prophet before Jesus, who said this. I don't have time to unpack the whole chapter. If you have time, read all of Zechariah later today. I'm just going to read two verses and I'll, I'll do my best to unpack it here. But this is what it says in predicting how the Messiah would be betrayed. It says, Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. So they're negotiating. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Notice here, as you compare this to what's happening with Judas, it's far more than a single prophecy. It's an abundance of prophecies coming together. Zacharias suggests that there'll be a negotiation over the price, which there is. That the sum agreed upon will be 30 pieces, there is. That it'll be physically weighed out that it will be thrown unto the potter. The potter is the one who sets the plan in motion. That's Judas. And that the whole transaction would occur in the temple. It's interesting that not only were Old Testament prophecies fulfilled by God, but most of them were not fulfilled by any of Jesus' followers or friends as a way to create evidence that he was the Messiah, but rather they were fulfilled by his sworn enemies. Like, how can you doubt that a power above and beyond those evil men shaped their deeds to God's pattern, using their sinful desires for his divine purposes? And verse 16 says, And from that time, he, Judas, sought opportunity to deliver him unto them. The words deliver him are sometimes translated to betray him. And the opportunity Judas sought would have been a quiet one, you know, with no public around where it would be easy to point out Jesus with little resistance. And Judas, after spending countless days with Jesus, he'd have no problem finding the right spot, knowing exactly where Jesus likes to go pray after a meal. And so the betrayal of Jesus, it's in full motion. And Judas's heart moves from temptation into full-on sinful action. And you really see the path and the pattern of how temptation works here. You know, as Judas is watching each piece of silver pile up, one by one by one, the larger the pile gets, the greater the temptation, 15, 20, Judas is like, ah, I don't know, it's looking good, but I don't know if I can do this. 25, 29, 30. Judas nods his head. 
says, I'll do it. And that's really the way that temptation and sin and betrayal works in the human heart. And let me just be clear that temptation in itself is not a sin. Temptation is part of life in a fallen world. But the more we linger on and fix our eyes upon temptation, the more likely we are to dive headlong into it, aren't we? Like it doesn't happen out of nowhere. It didn't happen out of nowhere for Judas. It took time. Like none of us wake up one day and we're like, you know what? It's a beautiful day. I think I'm going to sell out everything I believe in today. No, it doesn't work like that. We don't wake up out of nowhere and say, I'm going to forsake all of the truth that I know today. No, it happens slow. One coin at a time, lingering, dwelling. In one of my favorite books uh, by C.S. Lewis, The Screwtape Letters, it's a book that tells the story of a wise devil named Screwtape who's teaching his young nephew the art of temptation. It's a really great book. It gives you an inside look to how the enemy operates. It's like having a playbook to the opposition or video footage of their practice. He says this, Screwtape, as he's teaching his young nephew the art of temptation. He says, you will say that these are very small sins and doubtless. Like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. The enemy's hope is that we would not even recognize that we're drifting away from God that he'd have us thinking we're on a straight path towards him, but slowly he drifts us off course by the smallest amount till before we know it, we're nowhere near him anymore. It's like one coin at a time, one small step at a time, one small sin, one small compromise, until we're, until we're just ensnared by a multitude of small steps away from God and find ourselves in a deep pit, nowhere near him, controlled by darkness. That's where Judas is. Luke 22 tells us that when Judas begins his plot, Satan had entered into him. His heart was being controlled by him. See, the more we linger and dwell on temptation, the more room Satan has to work in our heart. And so we got to guard ourselves from, you know, when we're like, I'm just going to look really quick. It's not a big deal. Or I'm just going to think about this thing for a while. It's, it's no big deal. What are the things that we're lingering on too much? Where are we giving Satan room to work? What are the coins that are adding up in front of you that if it reached the right amount, you would say, I'm in? We've got to wrestle with that. 
But how? How do we combat that? Well, Hebrews 2 tells us, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We got to pay close attention to what we've heard. What have we heard? The gospel, the good news that Jesus came and died for us. More than that was raised from death. And that same power that he used to conquer the grave is now at work in us so that we can combat sin. Why do we dwell on that? Lest we drift away from it. We got to make war against sin and temptation because it's trying to make war against us whether we know it or not. And we do that by listening and dwelling on the word of God carefully and diligently. Here's the thing about Judas. And we'll see this a few verses later. When they all sit down for the Passover meal, Jesus tells his disciples, hey, one of you is going to betray me. And they're taken aback by it. They can't believe it. One by one, they go around the table. They're like, Lord, is it I? Like, Lord, surely it cannot be me. Is it I, Lord? Lord, is it me? And then it gets to Judas and Judas says, is it I, rabbi? Rabbi, he says, not Lord. See, Jesus isn't Lord to him. In Judas's heart, he never moved from teacher to Lord. And that's where we put Jesus when we're choosing our sin and our own desires over him. It's a lordship issue. Is he my friend? Yes, absolutely. Is he a good example? Sure. Does he have good moral ideas? Yeah, for sure. But he's not my Lord, not my Savior. Thomas Chalmers, who was a Scottish theologian in the 19th century, he actually has a, man, I was researching him, and he has one of the greatest titles I've ever seen given to someone. He was known as Scotland's greatest 19th century churchman. Like, what a title. Like, who's North Van's greatest 21st century churchman? Got to meet that guy. Thomas Chalmers, in his book, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, which talks about this idea of replacing our sinful desires with a new affection being God. He says this, and I'm going to close with this. He says, The heart is not so constituted. And the only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. The best way to overcome the world is not with morality or self-discipline. Christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and excellence of Christ. They overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world, Jesus. Jesus. Jesus.